Hello and welcome to Leviathan News. It's January 6th. I'm your host, Sam McCullough, and I'm here with the wonderful DeFi advisor. What's up, sir? Hello, sir. How are you? I'm good. Nice to be on. Yeah, it's great to hear. Uh, today, we also have a special guest, Sebastian Bruegel from Hopper, who is here to uh, be under the hot seat. Welcome. Good to meet you guys. <laughs> well, it's great yeah, to have you here. Yeah. And um, we're going to jump into privacy and, and Hopper in a little bit, but just want to talk about a few news stories before we get there. Uh, some stuff that happened in the week that we can wrap up on. Uh, the first thing that I saw today, which uh, I thought was a little interesting, was that BitMEX is planning to send Bitcoin to the moon, like literally. <laughs> so BitMEX is going to put well, one BTC on a payload that is going to the lunar service. Uh, they're going to put the private key and uh, just drop it there. So the Bitcoin weighs 43 grams and it has one BTC on it. And it's going to be carried on a Vulcan rocket uh, that is tentatively about to be launched on February 23rd, 2024. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds like the official beginning of the bull market, no? If uh, people are already sending uh, BTCs to the wallets with BTCs to the moon, uh, sounds like... Uh... A vibe shift. Exactly. What, I, what's your like moon outlook, Sebastian? <laughs> oh, on Bitcoin, you mean specifically? No, I mean like actually going to the moon. <laughs> oh, of actually going to the moon. Um, I do think that humanity will will go to the moon. I'm uh, not sure if I would go to the moon. Uh, you know, being in close to like close rocket spaces, I don't know if that's my thing. But yeah. Um, I definitely think that the generation after us will 100% go to the moon. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully we go back and we can prove the uh, conspiracy theories to be true, that we never went in the 60s. And maybe it's one of those things where we send a 1BTC to the moon and then 100 years in the future, it's worth so much that we have to have some like <laughs> exploration expedition to go out and find the thing. Yeah, yeah. someone <laughs> has to find that BTC, that 1BTC, someone has to grasp it. <laughs> It's such a big opportunity that you have to start a rocket company and go for it. The uh, big news, though, is that uh, we're getting really close to the ETF launch. Scaramucci came out and said it's done uh, yesterday, which oh, yeah? is kind of like subtexting that it's going to be launched soon. Uh, that was so obvious, man. Yeah. I don't know, the beginning of the week when we were talking about, oh, they're now going to postpone it. Uh, it immediately felt like, okay, they want to grab some more Bitcoin. Uh, like, why not? I think it's still up in the air, but you know we're getting reports. So this is from Fox News uh, saying that uh, the the guidance is that the spot ETF is coming hopefully next week, and wow. there might be different timetables, but they might be all at once. So nobody really knows, but we might see something. And uh, yeah, so like it's 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 coming. I mean, hopefully it's today. We might get news today. We might get news on oh, wow. today. It's possible that we have the actual the actual like uh, what. Like they're de declaring it, announcing it? What do you mean? Yeah, potentially. I mean, the, the idea for going into today is they announce it right at market close on Friday. And then, uh, you know, the weekend goes. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the weekend goes. Well, but Binance is happy when people pump it over the weekend on Binance. <laughs> I can see how that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but the, the we get the weekend. And then on Monday or Tuesday next week or even Wednesday, then we get the start of trading on the, the Bitcoin ETF because they're all ready to go. Wow, they're, they're actually, that's, uh, sounds like it's happening. Like my bet, uh, when you, when you say it like that, my, uh, my bet is that it's actually going to happen, but, uh, who, who knows? Maybe I'm just thinking about it cause it's my, uh, birthday tomorrow. Hopefully. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Uh, yeah, both for, thank you very much, both for me and uh, for the industry. Maybe if we actually get uh, this for ETF, it can, I, I actually think that, uh, it can really cre create, uh, <laughs> like bull market vibes, something bad, <laughs> to be honest. I really think it's a big deal, but uh, you never know with markets like uh, how much uh, of that stuff is actually priced in and whether or not, like I'm, I'm talking to some traders that tell me that uh, they actually expect that uh, the markets are going to go down once they, uh, hit, once they uh, tell about the ETF. Yeah, I'm sure the markets will move a lot once it's announced. Everybody's kind of like on the edge of their seats waiting for it to come. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's going to be a uh, a pretty interesting uh, rollout. 
Uh, we had a Fidelity Arc Grayscale all file form 8A, which allows for it's essentially like a request to enable uh, exchange trading for the spot Bitcoin ETF. Um, also a good sign as well, too. So everything is pointing to go for the ETF, either start like approval today and then starting next week or approval by Wednesday next week and then starting the, a few days after that. Um, back to ETHLAND, Celsius has started unstaking its uh, existing ETH holdings. So uh, I believe it has $850 million worth of ETH that is coming out. Um, they had been selling for the past couple of months. And now, right before the ETF announcement, they announced that they're going to be removing all of their staked ETH so that they can distribute it back to their affected parties. So they're not going to dump it, right? They will just distribute it back? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Okay, it's, because it's of that, that's a big back if that would get... Don't. Yeah, I don't think it's 800. I think it's about 350 million. Uh, but still, that's that is pretty large. And uh, if they are dumping it straight into the market, then you know that BTC ETH. Uh, I can't buy that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> you need to launch your own L2, Sebastian. <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, <clears throat> sorry. So Visa also announced a Web3 loyalty program. With smart media. Uh, this is interesting. As uh, Visa is entering the, uh, the Web3 space, uh, it's going to give customers digital wallets that collect tickets, loyalty coins, digital collectibles, and other perks. Um, I guess it's just like a, a next offering, right? Like if you think about like what can be integrated with Web3, uh, it looks to be, you know, just like the next step. Um, glad to see that we're seeing big companies come. Um, <laughs> okay, so the big ETH news that we've seen. This week is that uh, Athena Labs broke $100 million for USDE uh, a month or like in the first month before the public launch. Uh, Athena wow. Labs is coming out later this month before the end of January. So this is the product uh, by uh, supported by uh, Aldo Hayes, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was talking to it about it with uh, Kmets a bit. You know, Kmets, my friend from uh, Aladdin Dow. So he was, because uh, I understand that uh, Athena is kind of a centralized version of uh, F of X, the new protocol uh, by uh, Aladdin Dow. So to be honest, I'm actually, uh, personally, I'm very excited about what's happening with Athena, because I think it's actually going to draw a lot of attention uh, to uh, to FX. Um, uh, but of course, I'm uh, biased on it. Guys do their own research and uh, like uh, know that I am like uh, I am holding like uh, Aladdin assets and uh, whatever. It's a big deal for me. Uh, but in my opinion, definitely something uh, worth uh, for you guys uh, to explore as well with F of X. Definitely, when I see like such huge like uh, the amount of marketing that Arthur A's can pull in uh, is, in my opinion, uh, I don't know. He's something else. He's just next level. Yeah, it's a really interesting concept. I think we're going to try to have the Athena Lab guys on later this month Amen. Uh, once it gets closer to launch, but it looks it looks really cool. I'm, I'm really excited to see how it launches. Um, okay, so uh, we also had some uh, like responses to hacks. DYDX came out with uh, like a postmortem on the sushi, sushi and Wi-Fi incident. If you don't remember, Wi-Fi got pumped from like 6,000 all the way up to 10 or like close to 10,000 and then essentially like dumped within a few days. Apparently it was all uh, market manipulation that was taking place on DYDX. Uh, someone took a, a large short, or sorry, sorry, they got spot long on Wi-Fi uh, and took also additional longs on DYDX as well too. Uh, they then pushed the market up to like close to 10,000, switched all of their longs into shorts and then dumped their spot position. Um, DYDX uh, <laughs> is saying that they reached out to law enforcement, that they've passed on this information and uh they are essentially trying to roll back that trade <laughs> wow yeah is it how, how is that possible to roll back a trade well you go to law enforcement and go see <laughs> <the person. laughs> that's a that's a whole big rabbit hole once you start going that way i think yeah when you, are, when you undo trades and stuff like that but yeah uh, i do think that like like you know so like sophisticated participants are in many cases uh, malicious. That's not going to, that's a part of reality. You know, I don't, I don't think it's something that uh, is just uh, 
relevant for crypto markets. This, this is relevant like for everything, every industry, whatever people do, wherever there are uh, people, this kind of stuff is always uh, going to be a part of the game. And uh, I, don't, I don't really know my thoughts about it because uh, like, I don't really like the fact that there's an exchange that can, uh, you know, uh, undo trades in a way. That's also a problem. That's what, that's all I'm saying. I'm not uh, rooting for uh, money to be stolen or something like that, but I do think that undoing uh, activities is kind of a uh, wheel. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like an ongoing thing, right? Like UADX has had these, these incidents, they had it on Wi-Fi, they had it on Sushi. Uh, they just had a, a deleveraging event on um, Sui as well too. So um, the, they, they're like, reverted open positions. So Sweet didn't have enough liquidity when it came to uh, DYDX. Somebody had too large of a position and so they had to deleverage profitable trades. Uh, it's 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 all just kind of tough. I mean, it really is for these um, uh, on-chain perp DEXs uh, where everything's like smart contract based. Um, and then last we have Radiant who suffered a hack a couple of days ago on January 2nd. Um, it's like we can't even go one day into the new year without having a hack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and they suffered a flash loan. And so now they're voting to uh, use existing DAO assets to pay back affected parties. Uh, and this is going to be a total of about $5.2 million. They're going to repay with liquid DAO funds. But it, uh, how much of the uh, actual amount uh, is it? Is it the bigger part of the amount? Is it all of it? Uh, I don't know how much of the treasury it is, but uh, it looks to be enough where they can recapitalize. Um, Meaning uh, to actually repay uh, all participants that were affected? Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's going to be, I think that's actually going to become, uh, in a way, the standard because hacks are going to happen. But how uh, different protocols and teams and projects uh, deal with hacks and uh, make sure, uh, like, uh, they actually take care of their communities and uh, like users and uh, secure their funds. I think that's the actual process of uh, creating the trust between uh, like all all participants of the ecosystem to actually to actually make retail uh, uh, like consider using the things that uh, us weirdos are actually using uh, right now. But for most uh, people are still like I I'm talking to a friend yesterday. I was, I was talking to him and, you know, he, he sees the opportunity. He understands a lot of the stuff that I'm talking to him about. But also, mm -hmm. and, I'm, and I'm like honest with him as well, like there's so much risk involved when you invent, uh, when, you, when you actually invest in crypto markets. This is not, uh, this is not the place uh, for uh, security. It is the place for, op for uh, opportunity, you know. You're muted, I think. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's that kind of wraps up everything for the week. I mean, ETF news has been like the big, big story, um, and some of the other hacks as well too. Really unfortunate that we've seen so many protocol exploits just in the first like ten days of, or not even ten days, but like first week of. of <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Not even. Yeah. Well, I'm sure. Hopefully, we'll have a, a better 2024. Um, yeah. So uh, our guest for today is is Sebastian. Uh, noted lobster and uh, founder of Hopper. Hopper is a data protection protocol that is essentially almost like a layer zero, if you want to call it that. And, yeah, uh, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, so you guys launched what back in 2020 or yeah. now? And, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, so maybe you can give us a rundown of what's happening with Hopper and uh, what you guys have kind of been building for the past couple of, of months now. Yeah, totally. So connecting to what you just had in the news, right, where we see uh, hacks and exploits and issues, um, you know, I think this is kind of a human thing. I haven't, I haven't framed it like this, but I think, you know, greed and bad behavior is deeply ingrained in humans. We're kind of bad animals, you know. We are, like to screw each other over. We like to, you know, fuck up things. That's just what humans are. And crypto in general, anyway, what what crypto should be to me is trying to put that in check, trying to contain the damage that each of us individually can do, and we can still safely interact, right? So, you know, proper decentralized exchanges, unlike what we've just seen, what DYDX did, should not be able to unwind anything, you know. They should be able to provide credibly neutral platforms for all of us to interact with. And that's why decentralization, right? And we all know that there's nothing new here. 
But the thing that I find very important is it's not just decentralization, it's also privacy. Because, you know, what does it help if we have a perfect decentralized thing, if everybody can spy on us all the time? And that's what we work on at Hopper. We want to bring privacy to the mix. We think that it takes decentralization and privacy. So, in fact, I argue that a properly decentralized world needs more privacy because otherwise, you know, today I trust Twitter a bit, right? I trust that Twitter doesn't just um, broadcast my DMs. Um, even that's not great. And let's face it, as we think about Ethereum, you know, I trust Infura. I trust that Infura doesn't just, you know, blurt out my entire metadata that they collected from me, link all my accounts and, and put that on Twitter or whatever. People are working on decentralized RPC providers, and that's great, right? There's projects like Pocket Network, LavaNet, and so on. But as these guys decentralize, what is the trust assumption? You don't trust like one provider anymore, you know, that, that shouldn't data harvest you and kind of pinky promises you to not data harvest, but you're trusting some rando on the internet. And that's not, that's actually a worse trust assumption, right? So properly decentralized systems have worse trust assumptions than centralized ones. So the decentralized world needs privacy much more than what the internet needed so far. Anyway, that's just the motivation. And what do we do at Hopper? We bring data, not on-chain stuff, but data privately from A to B. So you can think of Hopper like a next, next version of a VPN. Or for the ones who are familiar with Tor, who might have used the Tor browser, it's a more private version of the underlying Tor network. And uh, yeah, that's the infrastructure, fundamental infrastructure that we built. So I can talk to Sam without DC advisor or the advisor or anybody else knowing that Sam and me are exchanging information. Because many people don't really think about that, right? So when, when Sam and me are talking, at least our internet service providers, but actually a whole bunch of other companies and for-profit organizations in between us that run literally run the internet, see that Sam and I are talking right now. And that's they don't know the data because it's end-to-end -end encrypted. But um, yeah, um, but but this data is um, is visible to a bunch of people. Yeah. So and if just to like highlight this, uh, consensus actually consensus who uh, like owns MetaMask uh, and runs it uh, actually came under like some controversy last year uh, or two years ago in in 2022 uh, when it came out that they were uh, essentially collecting all the information about like wallets and uh, your RPC calls and pretty much everything, your IP, so that if you just use the default MetaMask uh, wallet settings, all that information is being transmitted to consensus. You know, I get there's people that read this, right, and say, okay, I don't care. They know my IP address, so what, right? So let, let me ask you this. You have probably more than one, like all of you have more than one Ethereum address, right? I mean, just, just talking about myself, you know, as most Ethereum users, I have an ENS domain, which is linked to my name, right? You can link it to my Twitter. I also get my salary in ETH, which, you know, is nobody's business to, to know. Uh, and I have a savings account. And these are all separate accounts. I try to separate stuff properly. But... Most of us are interacting with them and you're interacting with them from your home, right? So you do that from your home um, and now consensus and other RPC providers, I just don't want to you know, hate Justin consensus. It's just a structural problem in the web three today. They all can link all these accounts, right? They know your savings account and they know it's you because they can link it by means of your IP address to all your other accounts. And that to me is really messed up. And that is the real problem. And people say, you know, I don't care about my IP address. Well, right. But, you know, IP address is a means to link all your accounts. And that's really messed up. So, um, yeah, basically, how do we prevent that, right? How do we take this, this IP address kind of as toxic waste out of the system? That's basically the goal that we have at Hopper. And what we're doing is we are relaying data via multiple intermediate relay nodes, right? So there's hopper nodes, you can run a hopper node. And when you do that, um, you are actually relaying traffic for other people. So if I'm talking to Sam, you can write a chat app on top of hopper, you know, and Sam and I can talk and nobody knows that it's Sam and, and Sebastian interacting. 
And also, actually, and that's kind of interesting, Sam doesn't get to see my IP address, right? And no other centralized server operator in between doesn't. Yeah, and that's that's fundamental infrastructure. We can later on talk about, uh, you know, that we're building actually something very exciting on top of it, um, a private RPC provider, actually, uh, that everyone who's listening to the show can can use. Yeah, exactly. So, and this is uh, this is something that everyone can can use. Uh, it's the first RPC provider that actually cannot track you. I know there's RPC providers which say that they proxy your requests, but I just want to spend you know half a minute explaining what that means. It means they replace one server, this RPC server. You know, Sam talked about um, about consensus, and replace it with a different one. And my question would be. Why do you not trust this one server, but you do trust this other server? Like you're re replacing one thing for another, and that's not great, right? So you can sign up for RPCH, and RPCH actually routes your requests through hopper nodes. So it hits multiple hopper nodes on its journey to the exit node. So the exit, the, the RPC provider basically sees the last hopper node in a chain, but they don't see the first one and they don't see you. So it's properly private. Like RPCH is the most private way you can interact with Ethereum today, and um, yeah, so you can you can use that service today. It's still uh, for a bit more technical users this far. Um, this is a Docker container, so it's pretty easy if you've ever used anything in Docker. You know, you can just do that. If you've never used Docker, well, here's your opportunity to learn something new. Um, yeah, so that's that's the product uh, as we have it right now. But yeah, there's plans to make this way easier and integrate that into wallets. That's our our plan actually. So the RPC space has actually really grown a lot in 2023, oh, yeah. and a lot of the focus was not really on privacy, but more on MEV protection and essentially saying like, oh hey, like let us route your transactions, and uh, we're not going to front run you, but we're just going to back run you, and we'll give you a rebate, uh, and so like i guess people have made the trade-off to say like okay like we don't want to be subject to any sort of sandwich attacks or <clears throat> you know we want we want to have like optimal routing for our uh for our transactions and so they've taken that route um but like you're saying the the privacy elements are are questionable when you use those other providers yeah, that's actually a very good point. And actually, that's something you can also get with RPCH. So if you use RPCH in Ethereum mainnet, um, we route the requests, the transactions that you send um, via propeller heads. So propeller heads prevents you, not just prevents you from uh, getting sandwiched in front run, they actually automatically back run you. And if there's profit to be made, they forward 100% of these profits to you, which is kind of cool. So it's not just that you you know don't get sandwiched or don't get attacked, but also you know if you did a stupid trade, for example, you bought some shitcoin on you know Uniswap, but there's actually a better price on SushiSwap, they will automatically yeah exactly that's propeller heads uh, like they will automatically back run you um, and forward the profits to you, which I find really cool actually. So that is provided out of the box within RPCH, and yeah, uh, a reason why I use it already. So this would be like, so it plugs into like existing MEV solver quasi intent. Uh, yes. Uh, infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. So basically behind the scenes on the RPC side, we don't change anything, right? There's the same providers that, you know, uh, we send transaction via propeller heads, but you can actually, if you say, Hey, I have my preferred, you know, RPC provider for whatever reason, you can connect that with Hopper and RPCH. By the way, RPCH stands for RPC over Hopper. Uh, that's that's what it should signal. Um, you can basically just change the connection. It's just a connection between you on the one end and its RPC provider on the other end. The, the stuff between is what brings privacy, right? So we relay your request and response via these intermediate nodes so that the RPC provider um, doesn't get to see your IP address and thereby cannot link your accounts. And so how does like, how does the economics of that work? Like what's the incentives for the, I, I guess, hopper nodes in this case to run these transactions? Yeah, great question. So basically, by the way, a hopper node doesn't even know that it's a transaction, right? So the hopper nodes in between, 
they just see data packets. It's completely, it's completely opaque to them. Like, what is even going on there? They don't know, are Sam and Sebastian chatting here? Are they just other hopper nodes that are sending data that they also don't know what it is? Uh, but it's completely invisible to anyone in between what is going on and who's sending data to who. So why would they do that, right? So why would anybody run a hopper nodes? Uh, you would do that similar to ETH stakers. So validators on the Ethereum network earn ETH. And in the same sense, people who run hopper nodes earn hopper. And I find this kind of analogy actually kind of interesting because the mechanics work actually very similar. So if you think about for the ones who maybe don't run their own Ethereum validator, um, you know, what do validators on Ethereum do? They secure the Ethereum chain. You stake ETH, then you create a block every now and then, and for that you earn more ETH, you get paid. And this is actually very similar for Hopper. So if you run a Hopper node, you are staking Hopper. You're of course not creating blocks because Hopper is not a blockchain, but you transmit data privately. So in, whenever you, you uh, relay a packet for Sebastian, for example, uh, who might be using RPCH, RPCH is paying that Hopper node operator in Hopper tokens. So every single Hopper packet that you get paid, uh, that you relay gets paid in Hopper tokens. You know, so we saw ATOR come out this year, which was kind of like trying to put a token on top of the Tor network and it got shut down. Yeah. Uh, and like, it, it... that was a bit of a weird thing, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, it was a little weird. It was wasn't like, it? Tor, Tor is such a long running project. And then it's like, huh. <laughs> so th this kind of serves a, a singular purpose for transmitting data packets, but, it, but it's not handling services like a, a, a Tor where it's completely trying to uh, like, obfuscate the, the internet traffic. I mean, it's doing it in the same way, like you said, it, it's it's similar to Tor, but it's built for uh, uh, specifically EVM calls and, and other types of uh, data packet transfer. Yeah, well, so here we have to uh, differentiate between Hopper, the underlying infrastructure, which is really general purpose. You can build anything on top of it. I'm not sure if we will see kind of browser traffic on top of it, just because mixnets tend to be a bit slower than Tor and it's Kind of difficult to optimize general purpose traffic um but yeah we can very well do that for specific api calls so we can do that very well for ethereum wallet calls right i mean ethereum wallets tend to be not very fast anyway so if it takes half a second longer for your packet to traverse through this multi-hop route on the mixnet um that's fine so um yeah hopper again general purpose infrastructure on top of that, we built RPC over Hopper, RPCH, which is this privacy stuff that you use for your, for your EVM wallet. So it is, in a way, the underlying Hopper is a bit similar to Tor, but actually it's more private. So um, actually Tor, and, and many people don't know that people think that Tor is perfectly private. Well, actually it's not. And there have been researchers who've shown that for at least five years that you can actually de-anonymize Tor users. Um, by basically following packets as they hop through this uh, Tor network. And in Hopper, you can't do that because packets look indistinguishable and they get shuffled. They get mixed up on every single relay node. That's why Hopper is called a mixnet. And it's mixed network, not to be confused, by the way, with mixers, like on-chain mixers. We're not Tornado Cash. We don't mix your funds. You can <laughs> not use Hopper for money laundering. Um, you know, they are, um, yeah, they provide more privacy. So mixness like Hopper provide more privacy than Tor. So I wanted to actually ask you about um, something that's like adjacent and that's this like intense-based architecture that's being built out. Uh, the way that I see it is essentially like a quasi payment for order flow system uh, where you're essentially broadcasting your, your intent, your like transaction, and then you have solvers on the other side who are essentially like auctioning or competing for that flow. Um, like, what, what, is that, what does that mean overall for Ethereum privacy going into the future? Yeah. So basically, I mean, intense for me is more, it's, it's more than just the financial things, right? It's just like so far, whenever you send any Ethereum transactions, you have to do something very low level. You have to say, I go to Uniswap. I go to this particular Uniswap pool. And on that one pool, I want to dump my ETH for USDC, right? Mm -hmm. 
And actually, when we think about it, um, for the people who are not so familiar with these intents, it's like, you don't really care, right? You don't really care that you do it on that particular Uniswap pool. You don't actually even care about Uniswap. You just want to dump your ETH, get USDC, and buy yourself, you know, whatever, whatever fantastic thing you want to buy yourself with that. So, and that's what intents are basically about. So intents have this idea of saying, okay, you just say, I want to dump my ETH and I want to get USDC for it. Give me the best possible price for that. Mm -hmm. And there's there's a bunch of places where you where, where that can apply. You can you can think about the same thing for for lending markets also, right? I want to deposit it somewhere where it gives me the highest amount of yield. And yeah, so with regards to privacy, um, I mean the interesting thing that I'm thinking about is how do users actually send these intents? How do they broadcast that? What apps are they interacting with? Like one that I like, by the way, is um, CowSwap, right? So CowSwap is basically a DEX aggregator, but on the other hand, CowSwap is also allowing you to kind of be, you know, you just say, I want to swap ETH for USDC, and they figure out all the magic. Yeah. Now, um, I, I'm mostly concerned about these apps, right? Because in that process, there's a whole lot that is that you disclose before you hit even the mempool. Like to whom do you disclose your intent? If you're a if if you're a trading, for example, if you're trading a long tail asset and you disclose this intent to some solvers, well, you know, this solvers or whoever that network or service operator is, is uniquely positioned to front run the mempool. So all these ideas are very cool and people think about them from market efficiencies perspective. And to me, that is kind of a bit of futile look. Because if you think about everything from market efficiency perspective, chances are we are going to come back to square one, which is Wall Street, which is a bunch of guys in suits that will be you know, uniquely positioned to screw over all of us. And I don't want to see that. And that's why I work on privacy infrastructure that you know, tries to make that better and have it decentralized and resilient, even though it might not get super efficient in that way. Yeah, it's, it all kind of ties in with this like modularity thesis, right? Where if we separate all the parts of the monolithic blockchain, uh, you know, we can take off data availability and consensus and execution. Um, you know, the, the, the RPC is also part of that as well, too. And, and also the intense is, is essentially uh, part of that as well, too, where, you know, the mempool, uh, I, I know there are some groups out there like flashbots and stuff that are essentially trying to make their own private mempools, right? That especially for the L2s, which have different um, uh, like consensus environments and how the order execution goes and order or order um, sequencing. Uh, the 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 idea for them is to like move into these private environments uh, where the um, uh, like the, again it's just like a payment for order flow system like you would see with like Robinhood or something else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say modularity doesn't necessarily end up in a better world, right? So modularity. Um, could also, I, I will draw a dark picture now, right? So modularity could also end up in a world where we have all these modular components and the most efficient one in each category wins. And the most efficient one also reports everything that's going on to fucking Gary Gensler, right? And, you know, is censoring people who it doesn't like, you know, and is bribing people to pay them, you know, out of band um, some, some bribes in order to use the system, right? basically everything that's happening in, in today's financial world. I have the hope that um, by combining these technologies, we will get to a technology stack which is empowering the individual. That is the one thing what Web3 is about for me. It's about empowering the individual. Um, that you can kind of mix and match um, components in the infrastructure stack which bring the most resilience, not the best execution not the fastest experience, because again, that will just bring us back to step one. So I hope that we see in this modularity stack more privacy appear. So we bring privacy on the transport side. There's people working on on-chain privacy. I'm personally very excited about uh, privacy respecting L2s. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, if we can if we can have privacy up and down where, you know, the like you at, at, at the RPC level where the the, the order, sorry, the transaction uh, distribution is, is um, uh, private all the way up through the uh, like the the bundling and then uh, solving an execution as well too uh, and then additionally on chain as well too where you can obfuscate using like zk or or, or other types of uh, 
like asset aggregation uh, to 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 keep uh, you know private transactions actually private or transactions actually private. By the way, uh, Sebastian, uh, how far away do you think that uh, we actually are from having these uh, like services available for uh, users who are not uh, sophisticated? Because I think that uh, at least at the moment, uh, as a as a very basic user, if you want uh, to uh, have any privacy uh, regarding your uh, uh, actions in the crypto markets well no matter the way you choose you have to be really sophisticated in order to uh, keep your privacy uh, so oh, how, how far away are we from actually having like uh, an easy way to for this yeah. stuff to be handled and us like just enjoying uh, like ux wise i mean of course yeah oh honest i mean this is the answer that many people don't like and will disagree with me on very far um, yeah. I would say we are at least five years away from, you know, safe and scalable and useful UX. And why do I think that? Because, you know, none of these systems that we have right now, kind of these, all these L2s right now are ready for showtime. None of them. They're actually further from it than, than people think. So we now see the first technical ideas that people could work on. It will still take time to figure out the details. And then it's making them secure. And then it's building apps on top of that. And only then yeah. it's about building UX. So I think we're far away from that. And like, um, I'm, I'm personally, I'm happy to see that people think about, don't try to cut corners. Don't try to rush this and, you know, build a stupid systems that don't work or get people wrecked. You know, I mean, some people do get wrecked, obviously. That's, that's part of the process, unfortunately. Um, yeah, but like thinking about Hopper on our side on RPCH right now, you need to be a somewhat technical user, right? So right now you still need to mess with Docker containers. That's a mess. Nobody wants that. I don't want that. <laughs> so like our our personal goal plan, I think we will be faster. Um, we will be over the course of uh, 2024, we will roll out this product into wallets. So you don't need to understand what the fuck Hopper is. You don't need to understand any of these things that I just explained. You just run your wallet and your wallet will just be more private by sending your transaction and your calls, not just transactions, right? Also, just to check how many ETH you have on your balance, how many ERC20 tokens you have on your balance. All that will be sent through Hopper and that will be done under the hood for you. And honestly, I think that's the way to go. So, you know, a lot of this complexity, we talked about intents and like transactions. I hope that we will see, we will see apps that people build that, you know, abstract that all away um to really get there and again get there in a safe way it will probably take years so coming from a privacy aspect or privacy expert like yourself like what is the setup that i should have as a user to remain as private as possible that's a very tough question actually but let me let me try to give the best answer today right so first of all uh what is important is if you really want to stay private the best thing you can do is run your own ethereum node um so you know i would recommend everybody uh, to run a dev node and i personally of course have a um have a have a hopper branded dev node so it looks like this here but this is basically it's an intel nuke right that is pre-configured you can buy from um from the dev node guys um it's a it's a really cool project very grassroots projects that makes these boxes pre-configures them and you can just like in an app store you can install a hopper node, you can install an Ethereum validator, you can install a you know Gnosis chain node on it. You can run a Bitcoin node on it if you if you lean that way. So that is important. Why is that important? Because in that way you can connect your own wallet to your own node and you know not rely on Infura and any of the other centralized services that we discussed before to serve your data. Right. So that's that's number one, which is which is important. And um, yeah, I mean, what, what, what then also when it comes to interacting with apps, right? So I really wish people wouldn't just rely on centralized cloud hosted um, services. I just want people to think about that. Like, what do you think happens when you enter your entire portfolio into Zerion, into DBank or whatever? Well, you know, you tell somebody else, dude, this is all my money. Look at me, you know? And 
maybe that person to whom you disclose it doesn't keep it for themselves, even if they try to. So don't rely on cloud-hosted services that you hope keep your information private. Like I would put it this way. If you're not fine posting something on Twitter, don't post it to a cloud-hosted service. So if you wouldn't, you know, put your entire personal net worth on Twitter, you know, don't put it into any of these cloud services. Okay, so and, let, let's let's talk about that text tech again. So it's it's get a, a hopper node, which you can get through DAP node. Uh, well, it's uh, sorry, I would I would say get your own Ethereum node. Ethereum right? node we right. have these they have these hopper branded nodes. Exactly, you got it up there. Yeah. So on this thing, you cannot just run a hopper node. You can also run an Ethereum full node on it, right? So you get the entire information of your account from the Ethereum blockchain from this device, which you hook up to your MetaMask or whatever wallet you use. I think the, the cost of these has increased, or maybe just the, the capabilities within, because I think I have the original hopper node. It like, was way cheaper, yes. It was, it was so like, the Avados, yeah. they, they, the Avados were way cheaper. So the reason why this one is way more expensive is because it has a pretty big ass um, SSD inside. Mm -hmm. There's 32 gigs of RAM and also a pretty powerful CPU. So you can really run um, a full Ethereum node and also a validator on it in parallel on the same device. And that's something that the small original one could not do. Yeah. And then you would run this with like a VPN and then use hoppers. This is, yeah, this is, this is now an interesting question, right? So if you run, if you run your own, um, if you run your own node and you sit at home next to your node, you don't need a VPN, right? Because you can connect to this thing locally. That's best case. So if you, what do you do if you're not at home? Right. So if you're not at home, what is very cool, these depth nodes, they come basically with their inbuilt with the inbuilt kind of uh, VPN. So you can connect um, via, you know, something like a VPN called WireGuard um, that I use on my mobile. I can always connect to my node at home. Hmm. So also on my mobile device, I can connect on my mobile wallets. I can connect to my depth node at home, which is very cool. Oh, that's cool. And then and then it runs all the transactions through the Hopper network. Uh, and so like if you're running the Hopper node, does it automatically have the RPC uh, capabilities in it? Uh, these are two separate things. So you would run a Hopper node if, because you want to earn APY on your Hopper token, which is used you know, by everyone who relays data through this network. And um, so if you connect to another chain, let's say you run, um, you do something on Polygon. Like I mentioned Polygon because it's completely impossible that you run your own Polygon node. It's just Polygon is too heavy. It's too resource intensive. You cannot run that on a DAP node. So for example, if you do something on Polygon, I would definitely say, yes, do use RPCH. Do connect from your, you know, do connect from your wallet. Um, through RPCH to Polygon or through any other network that you don't run your own node infrastructure on and thereby um, be certain that nobody tracks you. That's very cool. I, I'm going to have to go dig my Hopper node up. Maybe it's not ready for the ETH 2.0 or like the, the ETH proof. Yeah, so on, on that one, you can run a Hopper node, but you will have a tough time also running an ETH node next to it just because these machines were, yeah, much, more. much less powerful. Yeah. Um, so I did want to ask you a couple of things about uh, a story that we published yesterday, and this is a little bit uh, of a different topic. Uh, I came across this site and called uh, the Ethereum Timing Dashboard. I don't know if you oh, saw from it. Tony, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, from yeah. Tony, and uh, I wanted to get your opinion on these timing games because this is the first time that I had heard of it when Tony posted this on Twitter yesterday, and uh, I didn't know this, but uh, validators are essentially. Uh, incentivized to play this timing game where they can delay their blocks uh, from being added into the um, uh, from being added, uh, and by doing so, the more that they increase the time that the blocks are are uh, added and confirmed, the the more MEV they could potentially capture. And we're talking about a lot of MEV, right? We're talking about multiple seconds of of block time uh, because like. With Ethereum, all the blocks happen within like a 12 second period, right? And I believe all the blocks have to be submitted uh, by uh, four seconds. Uh, some people uh, and that are being tracked on the site, you can see how long the they, they're in the slot before they actually submit. So you can see like Frax here is usually submitting all of their blocks under one second. They have very little missed blocks. 
same with Binance as well too. Like they're they're all under right right around one second. Uh, but then we have others like Lido who are you know it's like two to three seconds inside the block, and uh, they're not getting a lot of miss slots. But uh, there are a lot of slots that are are being filled like you know two to three seconds in. So like it, is is timing games really going to be like a growing narrative as people start reading these papers and see that there is like if you are a larger um, uh, provider of these uh, validation services that you might want to actually like start delaying your blocks as long as possible to try to capture as much MEV. So I, I will say something very opinionated. These are all really stupid games. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very grateful that, um, you know, Tony visualizes them so nicely and, and makes people talk about it because these are really stupid games. It all comes down to what I said before, you know, if we try to optimize shit, we will end up in square one. We will end up in Wall Street. We will end up, you know, with a handful of gentlemen in like very fancy suits that manage all of this infrastructure for us. This is where we are guaranteed to end up if we're trying to tweak everything just for the last bit of efficiency. And specifically here, what's happening and why, why I hope this isn't happening is like, you know, this is a risky game. So to, to just rehash what you said, because I think it's actually very intricate what you what you just explained is you as an ethereum if you run your validator right on your on your little dot node at home right so every now and then uh, i i think it's something like every couple of months actually only so it's super rare if you stake only 32 eth right 32 eth let's face it is a shit lot of money so and uh, if you run one of them you get a block every you know every couple of weeks or months and then in this one instance where you can potentially make a bunch of money you can now play a game Right? You can say, oh, no, I'm not going to submit my block right away. Like every sane person who has a chance to make a bunch of money every couple of months will say, I want to play this safe. I'm going to submit this block right away. But no, these sophisticated players, they say, OK, if I wait two seconds, three seconds, three and a half seconds longer, I can get more orders coming in. For example, Sam comes in last second. I didn't see him before. He's paying a bunch of more money. I can include him, right? And I can MEV him and squeeze more money out of, out of the system. So that's a bug, right? That's a bug because it will end up with sophisticated players, not the little guy like myself in this little blue box, right? Because I am not going to risk it because my internet connection isn't perfect. My hardware isn't perfect. It will lead to centralization and it will lead to, um, yeah, to sophisticated players playing sophisticated games that the little guys cannot play. So I expect, and this is something, you know, which I don't know how it's going to be resolved and when, but I will um, expect that the Ethereum core developers and researchers come up with mechanisms that are resilient to these stupid games. And I, yeah, I, think I don't know what it is, frankly. Yeah. You know, I, I think when I read this and I read the papers as well, too, is that it's really hard to tell when somebody's playing the game versus just latency. So yeah. if you if you have bad latency, maybe you're maybe it takes longer for you just to to send that that uh, to include the block, right? Like you have like Frax here has super low latency. Maybe they're getting theirs off within like twenty milliseconds. But let's say a solo staker at home has like two hundred to four hundred milliseconds latency. Like that on its own uh, will create like natural differences in timing. And so it's it's kind of hard to actually see the difference between who's playing honestly and who's not playing honestly yeah i mean what what i'm hoping for and this is you know maybe it's it's a it's in vain but still i hope that people do not talk about faster block times um you know i hope that ethereum layer one will be this resilient place where people um can interact with one another and do not try to play these games if you do want to play these games on a centralized l2 you know like base on coinbase um then fine, but on Ethereum L1, I kind of hate to see these games. I do know that there is a desire to provide faster blocks. Um, you know, uh, Solana, for example, has like sub-second blocks and that's fine, but like that is a problem. And for example, this is a problem even, even on stuff like Bitcoin, right? So there's Bitcoin miners, for example, in China. Now all internet traffic coming into and going out of China passes this great firewall, which is again, horrible uh, infrastructure that you know, tries to de-anonymize users. But the implication of that is that internet traffic in China tends to be a bit more delayed compared to everyone else. 
Why does that suck? Well, that sucks because, you know, if you're a homestaker in China, you will have slightly higher latencies to get your block included. So we shouldn't punish that, right? We should punish, we should not punish people anywhere on the planet to run their own nodes. And that's why I hope there will be resilient systems that do not just push for faster block times and more efficiency, but really resilience at this base layer, at least. Yeah. And it's it's just one of those things where like, if we see it's happening, I mean, should we punish people for playing the game or is it just natural? It's, I mean, how do you, I, I'm afraid if we try to punish people, we also punish somebody who runs a staker, for example, out of China and has a bit more latency. And I don't want that. I would hate to see that, right? It, I would hate to see people, you know, being punished for not being connected to the right peer in a peer-to-peer -peer network. Um, so I hope we rather relax the conditions and, you know, come up with systems that um, prevent a good part of this, of this MEV to begin with. So that's what I'm, you know, you cannot prevent MEV and that's, I think, even provable, but improving um, MEV on a larger scale, um, I think is something that's way more interesting. You know, do stuff like have solvers which actively compete with one another to provide the best price to not have this MEV then in the end um, on, on the validators that benefit that. So I think a lot of this infrastructure, including this proposal builder separation, tries to do that. We try to build infrastructure that levels the playing field, that lets little guy with uh, you know the little blue boxes running from home, and the big guys like Lido play on an equal um, playing field. And that's what I that's what I love Ethereum for. I love Ethereum for having this mindset of constantly trying to level the playing field. And these games that that you pointed out is it's a really cool cool topic, Sam. Um, yeah, is is again this right? Step one is. We highlight that there is an issue. Step two is we work and research on mechanisms to improve that. And step three is we roll them out in production. And you know, stuff like EIP1559, you know, that there's a burning of the fees is part of that. The whole transition to proof of stake is part of that. That's that's what I'm, you know, super bullish and interested in Ethereum long term. Well, wonderful. Um it was great to hear your opinion on the on the timing games as well as uh hearing more about RPCH. Uh, people can find RPCH by going to uh, rpch.net or also the Hopper website as well, too, uh, to, to read more and learn more. And uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, I have to go out and actually get a new uh, Dapno now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and actually for the for the ones who are for the ones who are um, for the ones who are listening, we have a voucher code if you want to try out RPCH free of charge, um, exclusively for the listeners of the of the uh, show here. You can enter Hopper in capital letters X Lady Ethan um, with a capital L, and uh, yeah, that the voucher code gives you free access for six months. Um, for RPCH. Uh, so we'll, we'll have that in the show note description uh, that you can go check that out and use that. Um, Sebastian, thanks for coming today. Thanks for having me and talk about an important topic. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.